Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Green. Today, we have industry experts with the insights and perspectives on the latest cybersecurity news that impacts your agency and organization. Today, we have Dr. Paul Blatt, computer scientist at National Institute of Standards and Technology. Good day, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to talk to you, Kevin. Paul, thanks for joining us today. I think we have a lot of great things to talk about. Yes, I'm looking forward to talking with you and your subscribers. Hey, Paul, there was an article that came out this week that was entitled UL, UL meaning Underwriters Lab. UL develops cybersecurity certifications. While certifications in a sense is broad, I want to focus on a specific area, which is the software security aspect of this. To certify software, the UL will look at the patching process, how vendors address new threats, how these processes are monitored and assessed to detect new vulnerabilities. Um, I'm assuming they will have some type of tool chain. But one of the problems I'm still on a fence with the, in regards to the whole UL thing because of some of the transparency is, issues. But one of the things I want to ask you is, what's reasonable level? What are some reasonable levels of assurance that you think is possible for software through a UL certification or assessment? Oh, I think that they'll reach level seven. Now you're going, what? The point is that we have difficulty defining those levels. So when you say reasonable levels of assurance, that right there points out part of the problem. Now, I'm excited about the UL certification. It's not going to solve all problems. I mean, I have a UL uh, mark on my toaster, but um, that mark is not going to save me if I take the toaster in the shower with me and try and make toast while I'm showering. Um, likewise, any UL certification is not going to mean that your system is invulnerable to hacking or to mistakes or insider problems. Instead, it's an attempt to try and codify the things that can be done to uh, keep the, your cyber hygiene better, to maintain the best that you can. One thing I like about it, let me just uh, talk about it a moment, is that any certification expires in one year. Now, you don't have that on a toaster. My toaster is, is quite old, but the UL certification doesn't expire. For cybersecurity, it makes sense, though, because the software often gets patched, and there's adversaries out there that are coming up with new attacks. So having these expire in a year is a reasonable thing uh, to say, hey, this product needs to be reexamined on a yearly basis. Uh, one Another thing about the UL uh, assessment is that they are going after uh, medical devices first and industrial controls. These are relatively simple applications with relatively well understood functionality so they can say, hey, let's make sure that these are being patched, that these are being checked, that we understand how we're taking care of them. We don't just take this thing connect it to the network, and then leave it sit in the corner for 10 years while the environment's uh, evolving around it, the threat environment is evolving. Now back to your original question, levels of assurance, it will help people to say, to take the first step. It will help them say, this is something where we're at least doing a little bit. 
the exciting thing about it is that as they look at this, they can evolve it so that in the future they say, hey, let's add this. Uh, we have some tools that we find eliminate some common problems or detect some common problems. Let's add that to the certification. So UL, I expect, will be evolving. It's kind of like the uh, CISQ, Consortium for IT Software Quality. They're looking more at general software trends. Um, are they perfect? Are they going to give us uh, anywhere near perfect assurance? No. But it is an attempt to try and formulate what we know, learn from it, and grow. So the UL mark, I think, is a step in the right direction. So, Paul, I have a follow-up question to that. You know, you and you and I have had this conversation in various times. Um, we've seen each other at different uh, industry events. I, I tend to think software is is a lot. Is there's a lot of complexity to software? How do you actually certify something that's so complex? You ask a great question, Kevin. And yes, we've talked about that. I wish I had an answer. I wish I had a silver bullet that I could give you. If let me take you back to the very beginning. Uh, software assurance uh, certification has three steps. First, it has to be built right. You cannot test quality into software. The second step, though, is also examination. What came out of that? Is it reasonable? So there is a step in examination, in testing, static analysis, dynamic, uh, various things like that that add assurance to say, okay, we expect good stuff, did we get it? Yes, we did. And then the third thing these days is a reliable execution environment. We have uh, the Java Virtual Machine, JVM, is kind of a sandbox for Java execution. Uh, many things today run in virtual machines. The three of them are the basic foundation for doing software assurance. Um, if I had to pick one, if you <laughs> held me down and twisted my arm, Kevin, and I had to pick one of those, I would say get good people that are trained, that are knowledgeable, that understand how to build resilient software. Paul, NIST is working with the White House as well as other federal agencies to address software security problems as identified in the Cybersecurity National Action Plan. What do you think are some key areas to address and why? <laughs> that is a huge plan, and it goes to all sorts of places in NIST and all sorts of agencies. So um, I would not be able to speak to uh, the whole Cybersecurity National Action Plan as a whole. Uh, we are doing some interesting work. Uh, in particular, we're working with OSTP to, to come up with a plan on reducing software vulnerabilities, trying to dramatically reduce software vulnerabilities, not just incrementally. Uh, so we're trying to put that together, gather the best ideas we can and uh, put that together. There's been a lot of talk, especially in the federal community, about formal methods. <laughs> and you laugh. <laughs> I, I chuckle because that is a favorite of mine. Go ahead. I, I'm, I'm sure it is. So one of the things I would like to ask you, Paul, is what are some of the specific use cases for formal methods in today's modern software environment? 
I'm glad you asked, Kevin. Formal methods is something that's a particular favorite of mine. Now, I might tell your listeners that they're already using formal methods. If they use a compiler, that compiler does type checking. It does um, various things with optimization. Internally, it does register assignment. Um, All those things are based on formal methods. They have mathematical foundations to them. It's not a matter of somebody saying, well, I think that this way of parsing and and putting semicolon, ah, this is pretty good. No, there's actual science, but mathematics, that those are valid. And now we ignore them. We just uh, go on by. A lot of the protocols that are used, especially security protocols, have had formal proofs of security that this protocol, that there's no attack paths in the protocol. Things like that, again, are important building blocks. They're foundations for our modern software infrastructure, our our cyber ecosystem, if you will. Most of them are things we never see. And this is the way most formal methods should be. They should be sucked in. They should be under the hood. They should be automatic. And so a lot of the the formal methods that we get will disappear under the hood so that we know that if we build it according to this or that technology, if we satisfy these constraints, that it's going to have these properties. So that's the, the most exciting way that formal methods are going to be to appear in modern software environments. Now, specifically, we do have to get a little more serious about formal methods. So given that point, um, developers, you know, modern day developers are asked to develop software and build software at a very fast pace. Uh, I know there's challenges in getting a lot of, a lot of state of art tools integrated into the continuous integration pipeline. A lot of times these tools clog up the continuous integration pipeline. So the question I ask you, want to ask you is what are some of the challenges we see with seamlessly integrating formal methods into a continuous integration environment? What are some of the challenges you see? Well, one of the challenges, like you said, is that they clog up the pipeline. Now, part of that is that the tools are a little immature. Uh, Excuse me, let me rephrase that. Part of the problem is that the, the tools can be made more mature. It takes some time to understand how people are using them, how they can best be used. But part of it is that we really need to sit down and think about our design beforehand. Programmers uh, can't just encode the first thing that comes to their mind, the first thing that passes a test. It's important to sit down and say, well, why do I believe this? Why do I believe that this little algorithm, these lines of code, will solve the, the problem that I have? And so, yeah, some of those tools are going to require that that you cannot pass go, cannot collect $200 until you do a little bit of work and convince yourself and the tool that something is correct. Now, the plus side is that if you have developed it well, then you have less of a chance of having this endless cycle of test and debug, test and debug, test and debug. Uh, Instead, you can go through the assurance testing um, 
and if you built a well, any bugs might will be minor bugs. Paul, I know you're working on a lot of things such as your static analysis to exposition. Uh, you're working on some formal method stuff. But what can we expect from you and your team at NIST uh, for the remainder of this year and the upcoming year? <laughs> I appreciate you asking me that. We have some exciting stuff. A lot of our work is going to be foundational or basic. For instance, um, in our software a reference database, or SARD, we are planning on adding Toyota test cases. Um, if you ever are concerned about does my tool detect problems, the second thing that you're going to ask yourself is, okay, where do I get a whole bunch of programs with known bugs? We've got them. We've got uh, the SARD database that you can download a whole bunch of stuff with literally hundreds of different specific weakness, weakness classes where you can check out your tools. So adding Toyota, adding some of the other cases is going to enhance this so that development of tools and people's confidence in tools can increase. So that's one thing that I think you're going to be excited. Another thing I want to tell your listeners about is our bug framework. <laughs> what uh, Dr. Irena uh, Bojanovas calls the programmer's best friend, or BF. Uh, we want to go through and understand weaknesses very well, the structure of them. Currently, there's some really good efforts uh, like CWE that have advanced the, the knowledge of weaknesses, moved the ball down the field. But our work is going to refactor those, so much easier to understand, much more orthogonal, much easier to apply, and much easier to extend. Paul, that sounds like some very exciting things. I think you guys are doing some great work over at NIST, and uh, I, I enjoy partnering with you to try to solve some very hard problems. Hey, thank you very much, Kevin. It's great talking with you, and uh, we're excited about building a future that is going to be great and going to be reliable. Talk to you later then. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. Well, I think we have to wrap it up here. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Paul Black. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning into Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives on FedScoot Radio with your host, Kevin Green. Until next time, peace.